Garrettson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City, 1510 AM and 94.5 FM. We are back with another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I am your host, Jack Johnson, today. So before we get into the breaking news of this morning and play you a couple of interviews from last night, uh, let's just go over what the landscape of today looks like down in Kansas City at the T-Mobile Center with the biggest day in the Big 12 tournament, the four-game spread between first things first, you have Iowa State and Baylor, then you have Kansas, West Virginia, then you will have Texas and Oklahoma State, and then you will have Kansas State and TCU. Before, though, we dive into the breaking news, let's give a shout-out to our presenting sponsors, starting with Gerritsen and Toth. They handle the most complex felony, federal, or state criminal defense cases. You'll find them in doing that successfully, helping criminal defendants all over the Kansas City area and northeast Kansas for years. Also, be sure to visit Kim Hauer and Associates Agency at 105th and Metcalf in Overland Park, or give Kim and her team a call at 913-649-2002. That's 913-649-2002 for a quote on your home and auto insurance today. So the big breaking news, as we keep teasing over and over again to kick off this show, involves head coach of the Kansas Jayhawks, Bill Self. And if you haven't been very active on Twitter or haven't gotten text from people that have inside information within the Kansas basketball program, well, here it is. Self is to miss the Big 12 tournament quarterfinal game against West Virginia due to an illness. This is an official statement from the University of Kansas. Kansas men's basketball coach Bill Self will miss today's Big 12 tournament game as he recovers from an illness. Assistant coach Norm Roberts will serve as the acting head coach. Self is doing well and receiving great care at the University of Kansas Health System. It's a very short and concise statement, and that's pretty much all we could give to you at this moment. I'm sure it'll be an ongoing story as the day progresses, but as for an on-court type of thing, it will be Norm Roberts serving as the acting head coach for Kansas today in their 2 p.m. tip-off against West Virginia, where they are a a four-and-a-half-point favorite. I think with things like this, the last thing you want to do is speculate. I don't want to throw out any other things that may have happened that led to Bill Self going to the University of Kansas Hospital you know, you don't want to ever speculate it, whether it's this or it's that, because it's not really the right thing to do. All we can really give you is what this statement says, and that's what they usually tell you in broadcasting school or journalism school, that you never want to speculate when somebody's, you know, health is at stake here. And for what we know right now, at least according to this report, Self is doing well. I don't know if Kansas were to advance, if he would coach in the semifinals game on Friday night or coach at all in the Big 12 tournament. Hell, I don't even know if he'll coach in the NCAA tournament, because right now, All we got is that Norm Roberts will serve as the acting head coach for the Kansas Jayhawks. Now, Norm Roberts was the head coach to start the regular season, if you can think all the way back, because if you can recall, Self had that self-imposed ban. He put on himself the four-game suspension that also went along with the recruiting violations where he and his assistants were off the road for a couple of months. So Kansas kind of had their own penalty that they served at the beginning of the season, and Norm Roberts was undefeated. His most notable win was against Duke just two games into the season when they played the Blue Devils in the Champions Classic. But as for what's at stake now, when you look at this game against West Virginia, it's a damn good West Virginia team. If you listen to my show last night on Sports Radio 810, 
You would have heard me say that I think West Virginia could be one of the more dangerous eight or nine seeds, if not the most dangerous eight or nine seed in the NCAA tournament. So this is no cakewalk. This is no usual quarterfinal game for Kansas. You're not playing a 15 and 16 team. You're not playing a 17 and 14 team. You're playing a team that's on the cusp of winning 20 games. And you're barely favored in this game, despite having the home crowd and despite being, for the most part, relatively healthy in your starting lineup. I know Kevin McCullough was dealing some dealing with some back spasms yesterday. But big, big game for Kansas. I know that most Kansas fans want to believe that even with the loss, they would get the number one overall seed in the Midwest region. I have my doubts there. I have my doubts that if Kansas loses today to West Virginia, they will not get the number one overall seed and the one seed in the Midwest region. That may punt them to the West region, where they'd have to play in Las Vegas in the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight. I know that would be probably the last thing you'd want because a potential two seed could be Arizona, a potential two seed could be UCLA, depending on what they do in the Pac-12 tournament. It would be a bad draw for Kansas to go out West. And I think today can go one or two ways when looking at what is the breaking news this morning with Bill Self. The only two ways this can really go is Kansas comes out flat, they're deflated, they're worried about their head coach because it's a human element. That's a human element of sports. It's not always going to be that Hollywood cinematic experience where a player goes down, a star player goes down, or your head coach goes down, and everybody rallies around and you win the game. That just doesn't always happen. Now, on the flip side, you want to take the positive approach. Kansas comes out with their hair on fire, and they blow the doors off West Virginia because they've also had experience playing under Norm Roberts. That's also the good thing here when you assemble such a great staff and a staff that has been there for a long time. It's not like Norm Roberts is replacing Bill Self and Norm Roberts is in his first year at Kansas. Norm Roberts has been around a very long time at Kansas. He has been one of the staple assistants at Kansas. Now, alongside the great group with with Joe Dooley, you have Brady Morningstar as well. You know, across the long list of assistant coaches at Kansas, they've never really changed that much. Joe Dooley was there, Danny Manning, Ronnie Chalmers, Curtis Townsend, you know, Jarence Howard. There's a great long list of coaches, and that's what great programs have. You have great assistants. You have assistants that could very well take head coaching jobs, but they choose to stay. You know, I think, for example... Looking at the Big 12, take a look at Baylor. Baylor kept Jerome Tang for 20 years. If you respect the head coach, you have that relationship, you can keep those guys for a long time. Not saying if Norm Roberts went elsewhere, he could have as good of a season as Jerome Tang has had, but I still think he's a damn good head coach. And he showed early on this year when Kansas needed him more than he ever had been in his entire career. And he went undefeated. Won the first four games without Bill Self. Now, the philosophy is not really going to change. The plays aren't going to change. The mentality is not going to change. It's more so about the energy this team has at 2 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon against West Virginia. That's going to be the difference in it. There's not going to be a different game plan, how they're going to slow down Eric Stevenson of West Virginia, how they're going to slow down Kedrian Johnson. Uh, That's going to be the same thing as if Bill Self was standing out on the sidelines. It's more so about what type of energy this team brings. They're going to be flat. They're going to be juiced up. It's not a team they're going to overlook. Let's get that out of the way. If Kansas loses against West Virginia, they didn't overlook West Virginia. West Virginia is just a very good basketball team. They are an 8 or 9 seed in the NCAA tournament. They would be on the cusp of 20 wins. They beat Kansas today, they get 20. Or at least 19 or 20. 
I'm blanking on the total at the moment. But this Kansas team has a tall task today. With everything that's been going on, you now have to wipe that away and focus on a game that's about to tip off here in roughly four hours, a little under four hours. And you're going to do so without Bill Self. And who knows if Bill Self will coach Friday? Who knows if Bill coach or Bill Self would coach on Saturday? Who knows if Kansas advances past Thursday? We'll get all of that in a much clearer picture today or tonight, actually, after all four games have concluded. So that was the big breaking news of today. Bill Self will miss the quarterfinals game due to an illness. He is doing well at the moment and receiving great care at the University of Kansas Health System. So no Bill Self. It will be Norm Roberts as the acting head coach for Kansas today in the wildest day in the Big 12 tournament. As it is every year with all four games, it'll tip off here in about an hour and 15 minutes between Iowa State and Baylor. Kansas and West Virginia will be at 2 p.m. Following Kansas and West Virginia, it'll be Texas and Oklahoma State. And the nightcap will be Kansas State and TCU at 8.30. So after the first two set of games, we will know who's playing in the semifinals on one side of the bracket, whether that be Kansas or West Virginia or Baylor or Iowa State. We will take our first break of the show. When we come back, I want to play an interview that I had last night on my show on the Night Shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB that takes place every single Wednesday. Typically from 7 to 10. Last night we had a little bit of a shortened show from about 8.15 to 10 o'clock. But I had a great sit down with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network as we talked some Royals baseball as they are absolutely red hot at 11-2 in spring training. They bludgeoned the White Sox last night. Dylan Seas, who is one of the front runners to win American League Cy Young for 11 runs in less than an inning. He was actually pulled in the first inning, came back out in the second inning, and they had to pull him again. So the Royals' offense really battered and bruised him. And I know it's spring training, and you don't want to take away too much, but 11-2 and is impressive in its own. And I always say this about spring training. It's better to win those games than to lose those games. So we have an interview with Joel Penfield next on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. Welcome back into The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. I am your host, Jack Johnson, today. The Big 12 tournament tips off in about an hour and eight minutes between Iowa State and Baylor. Following that, it'll be Kansas and West Virginia at 2 p.m. After the Jayhawks and Mountaineers, it'll be Texas and Oklahoma State. And the nightcap tonight at the T-Mobile Center will be between Kansas State and TCU. Four action-packed games down at the T-Mobile Center. A great environment, too, at the Power and Light District. If you haven't had a chance to go out and check that out, I know it's raining outside. I know it's a little bit cold. This is the best day to go. All-day activities. Bars are open. The drinks will be flowing. And you have basketball to watch on that big screen if you choose not to go inside and watch all four games today. But before we talk any more basketball, I want to play an interview that I had last night on my show, The Night Shift on Sports Radio 810. WHB with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. I thought he had a lot of positive and interesting things to say about the Kansas City Royals, who are 11 and 2 in Cactus League play, have one of the better offenses, and the pitching staff is showing some serious signs of growth. I know it's spring training, but Joel tells you exactly what you can take away from this 11 and 2 start for the Kansas City Royals. Joel. Thanks for taking time out of your night to come on and talk some Royals baseball with your Cowboys tipping off in just about 20 minutes or so. I, I am nervous as hell for this game, <laughs> so it's hard to beat a team three times, but uh, I'm glad to be talking some Royals with you finally. I love talking Chiefs, 
uh, there for our, our time together every Wednesday. But baseball is my first love, so I'm happy to get back on and talk about that. Well, we'd just be beating a dead horse at this point if we continue to talk Chiefs, Chiefs, Chiefs and not give any mention to the Royals, who are by far and away the hottest team right now in the Cactus League. And if you're into watching some baseball right now and it's not the WBC Classic, you can watch the Royals over on Bally as they are absolutely laying the wood to the Chicago White Sox 12 to nothing in the middle of the fourth inning. Dylan Sees was pulled in the first inning, went back out in the second because you're allowed to do that in spring training. You don't have to come out immediately and exit the game if you have a rough start in the first. But the Royals tagged him for 11 runs, and that was Dylan Sees, who was one of the best pitchers in baseball, not only American League last year, but I would say all of baseball. And, Joel, my first question is, what can you take away from a performance like this in spring training? I know we always want to throw away spring training stats, guys playing well, guys playing poorly. But I feel like when you tag a guy for 11 runs and with as good as the Royals have been in spring training, there's at least something you have to take away, right? I think to a degree, you can't really look game to game and, and have these you know very specific takes of, of what you believe this team is going to be. So you've got to look at it from a broader perspective. And what I'm seeing is a team that is bought into the process that Matt Cotrero, Brian Sweeney, Zach Bowe, and Alex Zomalda put together, uh, both on the pitching side and on the hitting side, and it's, it's paying dividends early. Is it going to mean the Royals are going to be 15 wins better than next year, probably, or than last year? Probably not. But I think they at least seem like they could be 8 to 10 wins better. At least it, it feels that way right now. The impact of the coaching staff is very clearly uh, a positive one, and I, I'm pretty excited for what I'm seeing right now overall from from both sides of uh, both the pitching and the offense early on. One of the guys that has quietly had a fantastic spring has been Hunter Dozier, and I saw David Lesky tweeting about this about 20 minutes ago that his barrel is staying a little bit longer through the zone, and I think for Hunter Dozier, that's big. It's a minor adjustment there, but we've seen Hunter Dozier at least have one success, successful season at the major league level. Uh, for you, Joel, when you look at a guy like Hunter Dozier, who, of course, right now to the Royals fan base, is probably public enemy number one. You want a guy like Michael Garcia to start at third, maybe a guy like Nate Eaton. But I think right now all signs are pointing to Hunter Dozier being the opening day third baseman for the Kansas City Royals. So what does he have to do early on this season to make sure that he stays there past June or July? He's just got to stay consistent. And that's the biggest thing. Like we we know that the glove is, it gives it all a lot to be desired. We don't need to beat that horse because we've we've been there pretty much our entire time talking together on the radio, uh, on your show. But very like I, this is the first time I've really gotten to time. I've gotten to sit down and watch Hunter Dozier at bats. One of the first times this season, and his setup looks a little different. He looks like the bat the bat's off his shoulder. He's a little more upright in the box. The swing is shorter, like his hands are shorter, which allows the barrel to stay in the zone for a lot longer. He looks more comfortable. He's not diving at those breaking balls that are down and away, which was pretty much the book on him for the last couple of years was you throw a fastball in, it'll probably beat you, but just stay away and throw breaking stuff, and you're going to strike him out. And that's really what it's been, the story for the last few years. So it seems like he has really made legitimate changes. He's bought in with what Alex Zumwalt uh, has you know, for him. And I, I got to give credit where credit's due, even if I'm not the biggest Hunter Dozier fan. 
He's proving why the organization believes that he can be the everyday third baseman to start this season, uh, and it feels deserved at this point. And i got to give him credit. He's, he's come in and put in the work in the offseason, and if he stays healthy – you know, maybe there's a certain there, maybe there's a bounce back opportunity. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and wish for his downfall because I prefer to see Michael Garcia, Nate Eaton, uh, Nick Lawson play third base. If he's earned the spot, then I think it's a good opportunity for the team. Now, offensively, you've seen this team really thrive. A guy like Michael Massey who had a grand slam in the first inning tonight. He's been thriving he's in the spring. Awesome. Hunter Dozier, awesome. of course. Yeah, <laughs> Michael Massey has has been maybe the top name for the Royals in the spring. Hunter Dozier, great, as we just talked about. Michael Garcia's been great. Nick Lofton's had some good at-bats. Edward Olivares, and even guys before they went to the WBC, like Vinny Pasquantino and Salvador Perez, were doing damage. But I want to look at this pitching staff, and more importantly, the guy that took the bump tonight being Brad Keller. And the talk of Brad Keller this spring has been his new curveball, which is new to his arsenal. We've seen Brad Keller sort of tinker with a sinker, his, his hard fastball that he has, of course, and then that sweeping slider. But now... Adding a curveball to that arsenal, Joel, what can that do for a guy like Brad Keller? He's predominantly a ground ball pitcher. He likes to work quickly, but he's never really had a great pitch selection. He doesn't have a lot of pitches to choose from. And I know in the new age of baseball, you want to have about one or two really good pitches. And we think his fastball is likely his best pitch. Could his curveball maybe be his second best pitch that takes him to the next level? It certainly has worked for him. And I'm glad that he was able to go to driveline and get that work in and find something different. Uh, get that a legitimate third pitch besides a uh, fastball and a slider. He's thrown a changeup, but it's not not always great. So, you know, it just adds a third pitch in there, takes some pressure off the need to throw a changeup. But from what I've seen this during spring and these outings, I don't know what they did with Brad Keller this offseason. I don't know what version of Brad Keller they're throwing out there, but this guy's pretty good. He's awesome. I, I have a ton of optimism for what Brad Keller is bringing, and, Obviously, the contract year is undefeated, so there's a certain amount of that where he's going to be playing for a contract uh, moving forward. But man, he, he's proving a lot of us, a lot of the doubters wrong uh, that that were out on him. I was out on him to a degree, but very clearly, Brian Sweeney, Zach Bowe have found something, and some of the work he was able to do outside of the Royals organization uh, is paying dividends early on, and he's going to be in the rotation. Seems like he's going to be a really solid part of the rotation early on. So I'm pretty happy with what I've seen, not just from Brad, but just the pitching staff as a whole, man. It's amazing what some really good coaching and the modern processes of uh, of handling pitchers, you know, it's amazing what that does. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network as we do every single Wednesday from 8 to 9. It'll be a little bit short tonight. We'll have Joel on for about another 5 to 10 minutes talking some Royals baseball. We are down here live at the Power and Light District. If you can hear the loud music coming out of my microphone, it's because we're right next door to McFadden's and also right next door to the T-Mobile Center where Oklahoma and Oklahoma State will be tipping off here very shortly. I thought this was an interesting stat on Twitter, Joel, and I want to get your thoughts on it. It's from Royals Weekly on Twitter, and they are bringing up the Royals' uh, strikeout-to-walk ratio so far in spring training and why it's such a big deal, because last year the top ten teams in strikeout-to-walk ratio in Major League Baseball all were in the postseason. So you had the Mets, you had the Rays, you had the Dodgers, you had the Astros, the Yankees, the Blue Jays, Cleveland, Seattle, Atlanta, and the Giants. They did not actually get to the playoffs, but they did win 81 games. So still a very efficient efficient team that was pretty much uh, 
using their pitching staff to get them to those 81 wins. So when you're looking at this pitching staff, how vitally important is it that they can have maybe even a top 15 strikeout-to-walk ratio? Because as we just pointed out with those teams right there, all of it resulted in postseason success. It's significant. For the four years that they were led by Cal Eldred and uh, that pitching staff, the Royals were at the bottom or near the bottom of strikeout-to-walk ratio every single year from 2018 through 2022. So there was obviously a correlation to whatever was going on there. It wasn't working. Last season, the Royals had the worst K-to-walk ratio at 2.02. And that was by, I think, 13. I think the next closest was like 2.20. So it was by a pretty wide margin uh, when you're looking at this. So far this spring, and this is not including the game tonight, the Royals have 124 strikeouts to 38 walks in 12 games. That is a 3.26 K-to-walk ratio, which if my if I remember the, the standings correctly, I don't have them in front of me, they, that would put them seventh in baseball last season at that ratio. Do I think that is a sustainable number over 162 games with a okay pitching staff? No. But if they can sit around 2-8, which would put them right in the middle of the pack, in Major League Baseball, that's a significant improvement and a testament to how quickly Zach Bowe and Brian Sweeney have been able to install their program and the whole raid the zone mantra. Guys are clearly bought into it, and it's clearly working. So I, I hope that uh, they're able to sustain that as we move into the regular season coming up here in a couple of weeks. And I want to stick on the topic of this game tonight. Right now the Royals are up 12 to nothing over the Chicago White Sox in the top of the fifth inning. If you didn't tune in early on, they tagged Dylan Seas for 11 runs. He didn't even record three outs tonight. And I think there is at least a little bit of something you can take away from an offensive performance like this. But I was very intrigued in seeing the spring training and Royals debut of Jackie Bradley Jr., who just always felt like he was going to end up in a Royals uniform. Well, he absolutely impressed tonight. Two for two with a ringing double into the gap. Nearly actually went out, which would have made Dylan C's start that much worse. But when you look at a guy like Jackie Bradley Jr., he has not been the same since leaving Boston. He wasn't very good in Milwaukee. He wasn't very good in Toronto last year. But what he does provide is defensive value. What does JBJ have to do, Joel, to make this team out of camp? He's got to keep hitting. I'm not convinced that he's going to make the opening day roster. Uh, I think the outfield, at least as it, it's presented right now, seems fairly set uh, with MJ, Kyle Isbell, Emeril Olivares, possibly a Nate Eaton, and Frondo Reyes. I think he is really impressed. He's come in and mashed the ball, which is all you need from a guy like that. Uh, as a, a non-roster invitee to camp, it feels like uh, with the way they can consistently put him in the middle of the order in these lineups with the A squad, that Rondo Reyes is probably going to be on the opening day roster and play a lot of outfield or DH for this team. It's, I think it's a competition really between Nate Eaton and Jackie Bradley Jr. And I would lean probably Nate Eaton just because of the positional versatility, play some infield, play some outfield. And Jackie Bradley Jr. since 2020 has not been good. He hasn't hit the ball well at all. And I don't know if it's worth having just a an absolute hole at the bottom of your order at least how it's looked over the last couple of years with Jack Bradley Jr. And uh, he's a solid defender. I'm not going to discredit him for that. But I would rather have at least some semblance of offense along with that. And I don't know if JBJ can provide that at this point. If he was told me in 2019 that Jackie Bradley Jr. was on the Royals, it would have made a ton of sense. 
But in 2023, I, I just don't know if it's, it's there at this point. Now, if you want to, if, if he likes the organization, feels like it's a good fit, and he's willing to go down to Omaha and mentor some of these younger players and, you know, have some opportunity down there and it's the first sign of trouble for any of these guys or there's an injury that happens, he can come up. I think he can, he can service just fine for a two to three week stretch. But I, I don't know if he is going to be a, a long-term or even short-term fit in Kansas City to start the season. We're on the line with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network talking some Royals baseball. Joel, I know you saw this tweet from a couple of days ago from Foolish Baseball on Twitter and bringing up blocks above average for the Royals' very own MJ Melendez. He ranked dead last in baseball last year among catchers in blocks above average. I want to point out this stat first before I give you his final number, just for the listeners out there. Second to worst in baseball was Eric Haas of the Detroit Tigers, negative 11 blocks above average. MJ Melendez bottomed the group with negative 25 in blocks above average. Joel, whose fault is this? Is this MJ Melendez maybe not fine-tuning his skills behind the plate? I saw some rumblings last night on Twitter of, well, he really did bulk up and focused a lot on hitting Murray defensively, where that was his shining point of his game early on in his career that kind of faded away. Is it on the Royals for bouncing in between catcher and left field and right field? I mean, who can we really blame for a guy like MJ Melendez, who was supposed to be the next catching great in Kansas City behind Salvador Perez, and now you come to find out he's defensively, by every single metric, one of the worst catchers in baseball. You know, I'm not going to try and put blame on anybody. I think it's just one of those things that sometimes it just doesn't work out, and that's just the way baseball goes sometimes. There was a lot of reports, and at least every report that I had heard is that he was fantastic behind the plate, going back to A-ball, that that was one of gonna, that was going to be the calling card was, his bat may not play early on, but the defense is going to be really good. And it turned out it was actually the opposite, where the defense was very, very bad, and he turned out to be a very major league hitter very quickly. At least what, what I appreciate is he ha- he's still a supreme athlete that you know is willing to move to another position and make it work. So there is something to be said for that. He could be super stubborn and say, no, I'm a catcher, and that's all I want to do. Doesn't seem like that's the case. So, I still think there will be opportunities for him to catch. I don't think Freddie, like as as awesome as Freddie Fermin has been and as great as he is defensively, I don't think if they need to give Salvador Perez a couple of days off, Fermin is going to be in the lineup every single day or you know even more than twice a week. So there will still be opportunities for MJ to catch. I don't think there will be a lot, and it does it takes a little bit of pressure off of him and just allows him to hit. Play the outfield, go catch every you know you know a few times a week. Get maybe uh, Paul having Paul Hoover as the bench coach uh, and a, a catching guru. Maybe there's something there that they could work with, and if they still believe that MJ can be a catcher in the future. But if not, I think he has a great opportunity to be an average, average to above average outfielder, and he's going to hit. So at the, at the end of the day, he's found a way in the lineup. It's not blocking anything right now, no pun intended. And I think, if nothing else, he's going to be your leadoff hitter. He's going to make it work, and we go from there. We're talking with Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network, as we do every single Wednesday from 8 to 9. But, of course, as we've mentioned, a little bit of a short edition tonight because we only have an hour and a half long show here on Sports Radio 810 WHB. So last couple questions for you here, Joel. And this one's going to be more of a fun one. We could sit here and go back and forth and, 
think about this team's path to 81 wins or how they can be competitive. We can go over all of that and be realistic. But this question, Joel, is to have your mind wander a little bit, to think outside the box, to have some fun with this. So my simple question to you is if there's any path for this team to get to the postseason, how does it happen maybe step by step? Um, shoot. <laughs> everybody overperforms. Like it would probably take everybody hitting their hundredth percentile outcome for that to happen. Uh, Cleveland would have to just completely fall apart. Chicago would probably have to fall apart. Like it would, it would take everybody in the division having career worst years for the most part, and then and the Royals just absolutely play above their head more than they did in 2014. But you know, crazier things have happened in baseball. So I'm not going to act like there it's a impossibility that the Royals make the playoffs, but I'm not going to sit here and act like it's likely. Either. Yeah, I think that's everybody's assumption right now. And, again, it's not me coming on the air here and saying, well, this team's going to be postseason bound. But sometimes uh, before opening day you have that optimism. It doesn't matter who's on the roster. You want to get excited about the team. One of the ways to excite yourself about this team is finding a way to the postseason joel last question for you non-royals related or i guess you can say slightly royals related because they are playing in this event but the world baseball classic kicked off last night you had panama and the kingdom of the netherlands with the kingdom of the netherlands winning four to two over cuba and there's going to be more games on in the next couple of days into the weekend the u.s plays on saturday against great britain at 8 p.m., you can watch Shohei Otani if you want to get up early in the morning at 5 a.m. Here coming up here in a couple of hours, I guess, you can watch Japan have their first game in the WBC. But, Joel, my question to you is, who do you have coming out on top? Of course, the U.S. won in 2017. I believe the DR won in 2013. And Japan won the first two WBC titles. The betting favorites in the 2023 WBC is the U.S., the Dominican Republic, and the Japan. No shock there. So who are you going to go with uh, to come out on top here in a couple of weeks? I, Being an American myself, there's some bias, <laughs> and I'm going to go with the United States. Uh, the Dominicans are so good. That team is absolutely ridiculous. And it is unfortunate that the Dominican Republic and the United States are on the same side of the bracket, so they will not play in the final. So that is going to be the semifinal matchup, and mm-hmm. that might be the best game of the entire event. But I think the U.S. will beat Japan in the uh, in the final. And the best part of that game will be Shohei Otani pitching in the championship against Mike Trout. That is going to be super cool. Uh, but it, it's such a cool event. It's so good for the sport of baseball uh, to showcase all of these guys playing for either their home country or their you know the country of heritage. And in 2017, I think it, it took a, gave a lot of really solid positive momentum for the sport going into the 2017 season. I think it's going to do the same this year and get people that maybe are casual baseball fans that catch the U.S. Dominican game or a Puerto Rico Dominican game or Japan versus uh, Korea, and they get excited about it uh, and you know intrigue them more about the sport. Maybe it could lead to something like that. That's my hope. I'll tell you, the only negative about the WBC was the horn guy last night for Cuba because that made the game nearly unwatchable, which was the first game in the game WBC. In the <laughs> I muted that game in the first I, inning. I couldn't everybody had to. No, Nobody could listen to that, and I'm all for uh, crowd environments in baseball, but I was much more entertained by the Chinese Taipei game that took place against Panama at around 5 or 6 a.m. it was this morning. But 
All the big dogs are going to be playing this weekend. They've had some exhibition games right now. The U.S. is playing against San Francisco in a spring training game. But the United States of America will play on Saturday, game one of the WBC for them against Great Britain. I'm sure everybody should tune in because this really is one of the more exciting events you can have in all of baseball. Joel, thanks so much for your time as always, and go cheer on the Cowboys. Absolutely. Go, folks. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. That was Joel Penfield of KC Sports Network. He joins me every single Wednesday on the night shift on Sports Radio 810 WHB from 8 to 9 p.m. Let's take our final break of the show. When we come back, i got one more interview to play for you. That was from last night as well with Jordan Foote, Deputy Editor of Arrowhead Report. That's next on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. Welcome back into The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I am your host, Jack Johnson. To wrap up our show, I got one more interview to play for you from my show last night on the night shift that takes place every single Wednesday from 7 to 10 on Sports Radio 810 WHB. So what we are going to do is with that second interview is talk some NFL draft with Jordan Foote, deputy editor of Arrowhead Report. Here is Jordan. Let's go back to the phone lines and talk some NFL draft with Jordan Foote, deputy editor of Arrowhead Report. Jordan, how are we doing tonight? Jack, I am good, buddy. I hope you were uh, managing to stay warm down there and having a good time, man. Yes, because I remember you were down here last year freezing your ass off just like I was. So thankfully, I'm in this very cozy and warm studio. But it's the perfect time, I think, after about an hour of college basketball talk, to take a little bit of a pivot and talk NFL draft because in this most recent mock draft, I can't even believe my eyes, done by CBS Sports' uh, Chris Trapasso, he has the Kansas City Chiefs taking a running back, I believe. Or actually, he had Jordan Addison. And the other CBS Sports mock draft, he has Jameer Gibbs going to the Kansas City Chiefs with the 31st pick. I can't quite wrap my head around another first-round running back going to Kansas City especially when you found Isaiah Pacheco in the seventh round. Jordan, I want you to talk me out the ledge here. There is virtually 0% chance that a running back is taken the first round by Kansas City, no? Buddy, I I am a very, very big uh, proponent of there's always a non-zero chance, but there is a zero chance. There is no way and you know where that they go with the running back again at 31. And, like, yeah. I'm also a big proponent of teams not necessarily drafting for need at the end of the first round, but the Chiefs have kind of backed themselves into a corner before free agency, even if they did find a left tackle, trade for a left tackle, find a defensive end, trade for a defensive end, maybe add to the wide receiver room. I'd still say that the odds are very, very low if they did all those things. Um, They just cannot afford a luxury pick like a running back. It's really not even a luxury pick because they already have Isaiah Pacheco, who's at worst probably a good member of a tandem. They can get a good member of a tandem via trade, free agency, or day three of the NFL draft. There's this thing called waiting until the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and UDFA sections to get a running back. So I'm with you. I'd say that chance is like zero right now, then maybe like 1% if they make some other moves. And I don't want to badmouth Trapasso in saying that the Chiefs take a running back. It was actually Kyle Stackpole of CBS Sports that about 12 hours ago put out the mock draft with the Chiefs taking Gibbs with the 31st pick. Now pivoting to a different position with 
maybe letting a guy like Orlando Brown Jr. walk, not giving him the long-term extension. Jordan, what are the chances the Chiefs would maybe package up a couple of picks, move up in the first round, and find their future left tackle in the draft and not give OBJ the big money? I think it's possible. Um, I would say the odds of them actually paying OBJ at this point are really, really, really low. Like, they obviously want a long-term left tackle. I think he can get more from another team than he can get from the Chiefs, not just in terms of what they can offer, but what they will offer. Um, When you look at the blind resume, man, he's a four-time pro bowler. He's a guy that has handled adequately the transition to left tackle. He's a Super Bowl champion. Like, yeah, he really wasn't that great this past season, but some team out there, cough, cough, maybe the Chicago Bears, maybe a team like the Patriots, you know, some team that really needs a tackle and isn't afraid to go after one, they're going to offer him better than the Chiefs are going to give him. If they're going to give him the $23 million a year. They're going to give him the $50, $60, 70000000 million guaranteed. They're going to give him that contract. So in terms of him coming back, just don't think it's likely. Um, on the flip side, like you said, what do the Chiefs do in the draft if they need a tackle? I think the play, barring a massive trade-up, and there's a certain drop-off that I think they should be comfortable with, um, you sign a veteran, a Donovan Smith or a, a Taylor Luan, which people have been bringing up today. Um, you trade for someone, perhaps a veteran, and then you draft a Anton Harrison with a small trade-up, or maybe he falls to 31. You draft a Jalen Duncan in the second round, and you move up for him and hope he's your left tackle of the future. Maybe move DeJuan Jones over to the other side. He's a really, really big Orlando Brown Jr. type guy. Maybe you think Darnell Wright can eventually move over like Eric Fisher did where they play him for a year and then switch him. But I think really the big three, and for the Chiefs' purposes, because Gronsky's arms are really small and short, probably the big two of Paris Johnson Jr. from Ohio State and Broderick Jones, big Brad Jones from Georgia, they'd have to execute a pretty significant trade-up, I think. It has to be this year's one, next year's one, and probably additional compensation after that, maybe a third-round pick to move halfway up the round. Um, I don't think they do that. I think they're going to want a veteran stopgap option. They're going to want to draft their long-term guy, but I don't think they want to give up enough to move up for that guy. So whether it's Harrison, whether it's Duncan, maybe they take Blake Freeland in round two or round three. Um, The Chiefs need to pair that rookie with a veteran who I think can uh, take some of those reps if need be in year one. What's the deal with Lucas Niang? I know that he was banged up all of last year. He was recovering from an injury that he suffered back in 2021 against the Cincinnati Bengals, but is there any hope still that Niang can be a starting piece to this offensive line? Man, potentially at right tackle. I think the left tackle stuff is pretty much completely off the board. Like I would be absolutely forward barring a string of injuries if Lucas Niang even played one snap at left tackle for the Chiefs. Like I just don't think that's um, in his present, in his future, in his long-term outlook. I do think he can play right tackle at some point and he wasn't necessarily bad when he did play i don't think you can count on him to be in good shape or healthy or consistently reliable um through that stretch but if he is in good shape which it looks like he's healthy 
if he is healthy, if he's locked in, if he's ready to go and Andrew Wiley doesn't come back, I think he can start at right tackle. Now, will he? Who knows? I think that possibility is there. The Chiefs, though, if you're betting on a random free agent veteran left tackle and then Lucas Niang to replace Brown and Wiley, like Brown and Wiley weren't great last year, don't get me wrong, that's iffy. So, yes and no, he can do it. Um, no, I don't think he's going to do it. But the athletic profile is still there. The traits are still there. The team control is still there. And I think the Chiefs are still at least a little bit intrigued about what he could possibly be. We're talking with Jordan Foote, deputy editor of Arrowhead Report. I know the Chiefs wanted to say, or at least it was reported by Albert Breer a couple days back, that they believe Kadarius Toney can be a number one wide receiver in 2023. Can he be healthy enough to earn that title in Kansas City? We saw great stuff from Tony when he was healthy on the field. But, Jordan, I feel like to get that title of the number one receiver in the number one scoring offense in the NFL, you got to be more durable than Tony had shown even last year. No, 150%. And even Juju Smith-Schuster, like there were a couple questions. Like clearly he was the best receiver on the team, but can he be the number one on that team for a prolonged stretch? Like, in a small sample size, yes, they won the Super Bowl with Juju being the guy. But over the next three years, are you betting on that? I don't know if I would. And Juju, the knee is a concern. Tony can't stay healthy. Sky Moore, small-ish guy. You don't know about the durability long-term. You don't know about the production long-term. MBS is MBS. Like, the Chiefs have a path to running it back with the receivers they have and having it blow up in their face. They might not get Tony to be healthy enough. They might not have Juju stay healthy if he comes back. Sky Moore might not make that leap. Then you're relying on MVS to step up, and he's just not capable of doing that in a wide receiver one capacity. So to get back to your question, I think Tony, with an offseason with the Chiefs training staff, um, the, the training staff that, oddly enough, got graded really lowly in the player report cards, um, I think – he can get healthier. He can work on strengthening his soft tissue muscles. He can get as close to uh, consistently available as possible. It's not like an Adelbert Almondesi situation quite yet, but he can quickly turn into that. If this coming season he has more ankle injuries, he has more hamstring injuries, he has a, a bicep thing, like whatever, it's going to be an abdominal issue. Um, it's going to be tough. And the capability is there for him to be McCole Hardman in terms of all the gadget stuff, but also be a better lateral athlete, also be better down the field, also get more consistent separation, also run better routes. If you put all that together, that's what the Chiefs wanted McCole Hardman to be. It's the 1,000-yard receiver. It's the wide receiver one. It's the perfect complement to a bigger-bodied kind of guy that can find soft spots in zones. Tony can be that if he's healthy and if he's in a rhythm, the problem, like you said, is he ever going to do that? It's hard to bet on him doing it. If the Chiefs decide not to trade up with that 31st pick, not get an extra pick in the first round that they did last year and taking Trent McDuffie, then, of course, George Karloftis, can they find a starter with that 31st pick? And you can take any position here. It can be edge. It can be wide receiver. It could be tight end. Of course, he wouldn't start over Travis Kelsey. But offensive line – 
cornerback, safety. You can pick any player you want, Jordan. Can you actually find a starter, though, with that 31st pick? Yeah, I think you can. And it's tough because you look at the most important positions, um, wide receiver, defensive end, or slash edge, whatever you want to call it, and then offensive tackle, those are the spots the Chiefs have struggled at, really, historically in the draft, outside of a George Karloftis. Like, Sky Moore never really manifested in anything in year one. You don't know about him long-term. The Cornell Powell pick never panned out. The Niang pick hasn't panned out. Um, some of the edges, Kando, Herring, they haven't been big guys. I guess Herring was a UDFA. But you look at the board, if Jackson Smith and Jigba ends up running – uh, slower than what people expect. I think you could maybe get him at 31. I think if you really wanted to hold out, maybe Quentin Johnson falls if the NFL isn't as high on him, which is something that I've heard kind of thrown around, that most people are projecting him a mid-first-round pick. Maybe he does slide a little bit longer than that. Um, defensive end-wise, I don't think Lucas Van Ness and above, meaning Murphy, Wilson, Anderson, are going to be available. I don't think Nolan Smith is available. I also don't think he fits the Chiefs. Keon White, not really sold on him. Then you get into some tough stuff. Do you go Isaiah Foskey? Do you go Derek Hall? Do you go Felix from K-State? Like, those guys can start. You keep going down the position groups. Does Brian Branch fall to 31? If he does, you take him. Maybe you go with another safety there. Um, You're going to have some tight end options behind Travis Kelsey. Like, they can absolutely go pretty much wherever they want and get a guy capable of getting starter reps. The problem is, though, if the run on quarterbacks happens early, like many are expecting, and these guys do test well at their pro days, like many are expecting, the Chiefs' draft plans could be spoiled. So you almost think they might have to execute a little bit of a trade-up in order to get a marquee player. But if the board does fall the right way, I think they can still have a really good uh, first couple days of the draft. That was Jordan Foote, Deputy Editor of Arrowhead Report. That'll wrap up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson. We will be back tomorrow at 10 a.m. to recap all four games that took place down in Kansas City in the Big 12 tournament. But first things first, it'll be Iowa State and Baylor tipping off in about 30 minutes. You You go and enjoy the games, Kansas City.